This week's Retronauts is not approved by Nintendo of America. Gauntlet for NES from a friend back in junior high school. I'd always been fascinated by the arcade game, but being a preteen of meager means, I could only afford enough quarters to make it to maybe the third or fourth level, even playing with pals. The coin-op version of Gauntlet really embodied the quintessence of ruthless arcade design. It was geared around draining quarters from kids at as rapid a clip as possible, fairness be damned. Not only were 1-4 to four players constantly swarmed by a seemingly impossible number of the undead, scores of ghosts and demons in quantities that 3D games wouldn't be able to match until HD consoles arrived 20 years later, but you also had to deal with constant health drain as time ticked past. a nasty form of money grubbing that wouldn't fully manifest itself again in games until the mobile free-to-play revolution 20 years later. Candy Crush Saga's shamelessness would make Gauntlet creator Ed Logg blush, but the two games shared a certain kindred spirit. Of course, the big difference between Gauntlet and Candy Crush Saga is that the former was loads of fun, not simply a trigger for the brain's obsessive-compulsive center. A big part of the pleasure came from the fact that it was, in all ways, an intensely social experience, and not just in the sense of begging for extra lives on Facebook. Gauntlet was one of the earliest four-player arcade games, and it might have been the first ever four-player cooperative game, even if the entire experience revolved around entropy and monsters whittling your health points down to zero with alarming efficiency, Gauntlet was a blast to play with friends. As the saying goes, it's fun to play together, even if you're playing with some jackass who keeps shooting the food. represented the cutting edge of arcade games when it debuted in 1985. By the time the NES really took off in America, however, it had begun to look a little long in the tooth next to the likes of Strider, Darius, Double Dragon, Super Contra, the Ninja Warriors, and so forth. Still, the sheer number of moving objects on the screen, and the four-player simultaneous design, seemed well beyond the NES's capabilities. I was eager to play Gauntlet at home, finally I wouldn't have to part with a week's allowance to reach level 4, but I found myself wondering how well it would translate to NES. It turned out the answer was not very well. They gave it the old college try, but while the spirit may have been willing, the flesh was very, very weak. And by flesh, I mean the NES hardware, which already was getting pretty long in the tooth by the time Gauntlet debuted. No question the fact that the NES could even approximate Gauntlet was kind of impressive. All those ghosts and beasts and projectiles. But it was choppy and sluggish at best, and this being before the NES 4-score adapter, it lacked the compelling 4-player option of the arcade machine. It topped out at two people, and even that co-op felt pretty awkward. What really struck me about Gauntlet, however, was that it looked nothing like any other NES game I'd ever played. I'm not talking graphics here, though. I mean the game itself, the physical object, the cartridge. Gauntlet 
unlike Japan's Rainbow of Famicom cards, NES games came in a single color option, gray. Nintendo did stretch the rules for The Legend of Zelda in its sequel, which initially shipped in gold, but everything else for the American system shipped in the same boring rectangular gray carts as any other. But not Gauntlet, it came in a weird cartridge. It was slightly larger than usual, and the front edge tapered rather than ending in a blunt rectangle. The label seemed off too. It covered much more of the cart than standard NES labels, something made possible by the black cartridge's lack of the ridged stripe that extended from the narrow finger grip of standard NES games. And don't get me started on the weird oversized manual that didn't sit flush in a plastic NES cartridge dust jacket. The whole thing just seemed off. That's because Gauntlet, I would later learn, was an unlicensed NES game. It had actually debuted back in early 1988 as a licensed card, but its publisher soon had a falling out with Nintendo and decided to fly solo. By the time my friend picked up his copy of Gauntlet, it was the bootleg version. Well, bootleg's not the right word. I'm sure it was a copy legitimately manufactured by publisher Tengen, for which Tengen saw profits. But it wasn't authorized by Nintendo. Like Pac-Man and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Gauntlet for NES lived two lives, one in a boring, sanctioned gray cartridge, and one in a sleek black case that broke all the rules. Tenken had begun life as a legitimate Nintendo licensee. However, they only took the license grudgingly. Like many companies, they were less than thrilled about the licensing terms Nintendo offered to be a Nintendo publisher. But where Konami's solution was to open a dummy corporation, Ultra Games, that served as a front for sleeping extra games into the US marketplace, Tenken took a far more devious, not to mention considerably less legal, approach. The company initially agreed to Nintendo's licensing terms and produced the three aforementioned games as Nintendo-approved releases along with RBI Baseball. At the same time, however, they acquired inside information about Nintendo's 10 NES lockout chip from the US Patent Office, and they used that info to circumvent the system's authentication system. Now, reverse engineering a hardware system is a totally legitimate and legal form of engineering. But what Tengen did crossed the line between reverse engineering and naked infringement. Had they sorted out the secret of the 10 NES on their own, Tengen would have been fine. But by using insider information, they broke the law, and Nintendo rightly destroyed the company in court. But that case didn't close until 1994, the year the NES wheezed to a halt. That meant Tengen functioned as an unauthorized NES game producer for almost half a decade, and they made the most of the opportunity during Nintendo's salad days. In fact, in 1989, they stood as the NES's single most prolific publisher. Well, unless you count Konami and Ultra as a single entity anyway. righteous indignation characterized Tengen. The company was something like a coalition of disgruntled game companies who wanted to take advantage of the NES's popularity, but didn't want Nintendo to profit from their work. Just as it had made sense for Konami to expand its publishing options with a legitimate move by opening Ultra, being as they were a close partner of Nintendo who placed great value on their relationship, it also made sense for Nintendo's competitors like Atari, Sega, and Namco to flip the middle finger to Nintendo, raise the Jolly Roger, and engage in some technical piracy. It was no coincidence that Tengen published Atari games on NES. The company was actually a division of Atari, existing for the purpose of converting Atari games' arcade titles to home console. But they quickly picked up games by other alienated companies as well. Sega, for example, sat in much the same boat as Atari. They were another first party, overshadowed in both the US and Japan by Nintendo's success. 
Tengen helped publish a handful of notable Sega arcade titles on NES, including Shinobi, Afterburner, and Fantasy Zone. Interestingly, a lot of these ended up being US-exclusive releases. Despite Nintendo's more open publishing policies in Japan, Sega didn't really dabble in the Famicom market there. The sole exceptions were Fantasy Zone and Alien Syndrome, which had been converted to Famicom by Sunsoft in Japan. It was these versions that Tengen published in the US. also published the majority of Namco games that came to NES in America. Namco and Nintendo had suffered a significant falling out in Japan back when Nintendo tried to force Namco, who had come out early as a strong third-party supporter for the system, to abide by more restrictive licensing rules. Namco refused and went rogue, meaning many of their games to reach the US did so under the unlicensed auspices of Tengen. Even as Bandai legitimately published things like Galaga and Zevius, Namco titles ranging from Pac-Man to Rolling Thunder to Family Stadium, which was called RBI Baseball in America, arrived here without a Nintendo seal of approval. All told, Tenkin published nearly 20 titles in the US, making them the single most prolific unlicensed US publisher for the platform. They also teamed up with Mindscape, who published half a dozen Tengen-developed titles under license from Nintendo. The end result was that Tengen by far offered the strongest releases of any unlicensed NES publisher. Next to the shoddy efforts of Color Dreams or Active Enterprises, there was simply no comparison. Even the worst Tengen product was produced by competent designers and programmers, usually working from top-tier arcade source material. And quite a number of Tengen releases were put together by experienced designers in Japan, further upping their quality. Genuinely poor Tengen releases were few and far between, giving lie to Nintendo's so-called seal of quality. When unauthorized releases outshine many legitimate games, it really undermines the notion that the licensing process is some essential guarantee of excellence. Would you rather play Tengen's unlicensed Rolling Thunder or, say, Bad Street Brawler? the whole Tetris affair, which helped usher Tengen's demise. Many fans swear by the Tengen-developed version of Tetris over the more colorful first-party release by Bulletproof Software. Unfortunately, most NES owners never had the chance to decide for themselves. Not only was it difficult to find retailers or rental shops that carried Tengen titles back in the day thanks to Nintendo's punitive threats against anyone who supported Tengen, but thanks to a complicated licensing kerfuffle, Tengen learned too late that the console rights to Tetris actually belonged to Nintendo, and that their great white Russian hope had to be recalled at great expense. Tengen weathered its hopeless legal disputes against Nintendo, it branched out to support other platforms. Like many publishers, it found the terms of publishing for Sega far more agreeable than what Nintendo had offered. And anyway, it kind of made sense for Tengen to become a Sega publisher. You know, considering that they brought so many Sega games to NES. Their move to Genesis almost seemed like a homecoming. But eventually history conspired against Tengen and brought the company to its end. Besides all the lawsuits, there was also the fact that Atari games and the Tengen division 
soldiered on until 1994 when they were reacquired by Time Warner and ceased to exist as separate entities. Like so many short-lived publishing entities, Tengen ultimately serves as little more than a historic footnote. Outside of the sequels to RBI Baseball, the studio didn't create any original works, they merely ported existing titles to another platform. In the grand scheme of things, Tengen was really the product of a particular time and place. Like their Mirror Universe counterpart Ultra Games, they came into being entirely as a result of Nintendo's strange and specific publishing policies during the NES era. Despite the company's ephemeral nature, there's something fascinating about the way Tengen brought together so many different threads of 80s video game history. They were an arm of the hardware giant that Nintendo replaced, who teamed up with Nintendo's biggest rival and a former supporter, producing games for Nintendo's console outside of limitations Nintendo attempted to establish for protection in the wake of that former giant's demise. That's a lot of information to unpack even before you get into the Tetris situation, and that's an episode unto itself. Tengen may ultimately have been little more than a flash in the pan, but it was a hell of a flash. As always, you can find more Retronauts at retronauts.com, usgamer.net, and on iTunes. This podcast, and all these podcasts, are made possible by support through Patreon, patreon.com slash retronauts. Cool people like you make this podcast possible, so please help out. We'll be back next week with a full episode. Mm-hmm.